0: This is The Run Line, v premier baseball betting show. With Adam Burke, here's Ben Wilson.
1: We welcome you in. It is The Run Line from v the Esports Betting Network. And how about that? We've made it through the first half of the 2022 Major League Baseball season. Hi, everybody. I'm Ben Wilson. Adam Burke, our daily MLB writer, alongside. You're going to get a couple days kind of off, at least from the
2: baseball side here at v
1: How does that feel? It's been every day since April 7th. You've been writing about baseball every single day, Adam.
2: Yeah, every day but Sunday, but of course we do the show here, the run line. So, it's just too tough Sunday mornings with all the day games and the time change and you know all that kind of thing, but yeah, it's been a grind. Fortunately, the picks have done pretty well, had some ups and downs and uh, you know, have bounced back nicely from some of the downs that I've had, but it is a grind, Ben, as you know. You know, just handicapping the card every single day. Right. You've got, you know, usually 15 games a day, even on the short days you've got 10 or so. It's something that definitely takes a lot of time, a lot of interest, a lot of uh, – I, I don't want to call it sweat equity because that's not really the way to put it. But you know, it's one of those things, too, where you feel like you take a day off and like you miss all kinds of stuff. So it would be nice to be away from that for a couple of days, but I am working on uh, four conferences for our college football betting guide and Look doing some second-half stuff over at vcin.com So you really well? don't take any days of
1: off. No. It's just we're going to substitute one thing for another – But you can follow Adam at Skating Tripods. Brian Ortega, our producer behind the glass. A lot to get to today. We'll talk general regression report. Adam's got at least one team on his radar for maybe some regression. And we'll look at some general teams. Do we see regression either to the good or the bad coming in the second half of the year? We'll talk real or fake like we do as always. We'll also talk home run derby since we've got that tomorrow. A little fun exercise there. We'll talk about some of the odds and the matchups at the end of the show with the all-star break here coming up. Home run derby tomorrow. In Los Angeles All Star game on Tuesday. And we'll maybe talk some awards as well, who have been our, our favorite teams to bet on, our players that we feel like have represented the best value for bettors on a day to day basis. We'll see if that jives with where the market is at. But a couple of big storylines to start out the show today, Adam. We'll get to one soda. That's really the news of the weekend here in a second. The big injury news, though Chris Sale, who had made his comeback, it had been a long process for Sale back into the rotation for Boston. Second start back today. And it did not go well. It was an early line drive, hits right off his hand and breaks his pinky finger as uh, it was Aaron Hicks hit a ball nearly 107 miles an hour off the bat uh, very early in that game, first inning. Aseo was already struggling to begin with, gave up three runs before getting pulled, but breaks the uh, pinky finger on his pitching hand. We have no idea how long he'll be out. He, he said after the game he knew it was broken right away. A yet another blow for a Boston team that I mean look they've been able to stabilize they're right in the middle of the wild card race but we're certainly counting on Sales return to be a big boost there down the second half stretch
2: yeah for sure and uh, I think everyone knew it was immediately broken if you watch the video you can see that it definitely isn't the shape that it's supposed to be and you know the, the thing about Boston is you know one of their big questions coming into the season was the starting rotation you know and Nate Youvaldi's a guy that's pitched pretty well but also you know some of his peripherals don't look all that good uh, you know They thought that Garrett Whitlock maybe would be a rotation guy for them. He spent some time on the IL. Now he's come back as a multi-inning reliever. Tanner Houck's a guy that's had to go to the back end of the bullpen. So there were some questions about this Red Sox rotation. And the nice thing is they have performed pretty well, getting virtually nothing from Chris Sale here throughout the course of the season. So life without him is something that they're kind of accustomed to. But certainly anytime you could add a guy like Sale who has you know his pedigree, his background, uh, you'd like to have a guy like that. But... You know, I, I mean, they won't have him for a while now, given the, the nature of that injury. After the game, Alex Cora didn't rule out him
1: being completely done for the season, but you would think it, it's going to certainly be some time. And as you point out, with Boston, you know, at least the starting rotation, it's not been horrible by any means. It's basically been league average in most marks. You look at them, 18th in starting pitching ERA right now at the break, 18th in starting pitching whip. They're basically league average in walks per nine, strikeouts per nine, a bottom 10 in home runs allowed per nine, but not certainly in the bottom five or anywhere close to that. You just wonder now, it's a team that, I was talking about this yesterday on Beeson Bet Center, where we took a look at some of the yes-no uh, playoff odds here, and in the AL, Boston, right around a minus 125 price. Now, that was coming into yesterday. will be interesting to see once those numbers get reposted after two straight blowout losses to the Yankees, where that number leaves us, I would guess, probably more like a pick em at this point, maybe even money there, Adam, as they're a game out of that final wild card spot right now. How do you assess Boston now going forward? As you mentioned, it wasn't like Sale had been the ace all season. They've still done good things, but they and every other team in the AL East will have a top 10 hardest schedule in the second half by virtue of their division and figures to be a very tight race now with Seattle playing really good baseball
2: and the Orioles still not going away. Yeah, you know, I actually sent this to you. This was from ESPN Stats and Info after today's game that the Red Sox are 0-10 and 1 in series against AL East yeah, opponents crazy. so far this season, which is kind of remarkable, especially when you consider the fact that they've not performed well within the division and they're still 4 games over 500. So, that's one of those cases where, you know, the imbalanced schedule where you wind up playing everybody in your division 19 times, which by the way is going away next year. I think you play everyone in your division 12 or 13 times next year. But the fact that they're still in there is an indicator of how good they've done against teams outside of the AL East. The problem, of course, with that is in the second half, you're going to have a lot more games against division opponents. Baltimore obviously is much better than anybody expected. Being a team, you're right there around 500. The Yankees, of course, are very good. The Blue Jays, I think, are kind of a play on team in the second half, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about a little bit later on in the show. And, you know, Tampa Bay is, is always dangerous as well. So that's a big concern for the Red Sox. With that being said, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later on in the show as well. With the trade deadline coming up on August 2nd, you know, now that Chris Sale is out, and presumably at least until mid to late September at the earliest, do they go get a Frankie Montas? Do they try to get a Luis Castillo? Somebody like that and kind of bolster this rotation a little bit because it's the one really clear area of need that they have. That is something we are going to talk about, and it leads into
1: our next topic here over the weekend, by the way, after the results today. How about that segue, by the way? Hey, I'm, I, try, I try my best as a professional. <laughs> I was just going to add, by the way, after today's results, Boston, two games out of that final Wild card spot there in the American League. Juan Soto now going to be on the talk of everybody's minds here as we now have basically two weeks and some change until the trade deadline. That's because yesterday comes out, rejects the $440 million offer from the Washington Nationals, which on the surface, Adam, for the casual baseball fan, it's like, wow, really? He turned down nearly a half a billion dollars. Like, what kind of selfish guy is this? But you're someone who digs deep into the numbers. I know you're a big fan of Juan Soto. As are most baseball nerd people like us. You certainly feel like his valuation is probably, I mean, 440 is probably a a, a, ver, a ver, bare minimum, right, for what he's done in his career?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, he should be the first $500 million player in baseball. I think Shohei Otani probably ends up being the second, uh, you know, when his free agency hits. But the thing for Juan Soto is you hear $440 million and you think exactly what you were saying. Wow, that's, you know, that's a significant chunk of change. I mean, it's almost, you know, as you said, half a billion dollars. It was also over 15 years. And one of the things that the Nationals like to do, and they have done this in the past, is a lot of deferred money. So, yeah, Juan Soto would have been getting paid by the Nationals until you know, probably after his playing, or well after his playing days. But 15 and 440 is not enough in terms of what he would make per year. That would be less than Max Scherzer, Garrett Cole, Mike Trout, Carlos Correa, Steven Strasburg, Anthony Rendon, Francisco Lindor. The list goes on and on. That's not enough money for a player of his caliber. And you also wonder if he likes the direction that the Washington Nationals are going in. And I think it's you know fair to really wonder about that. They don't have a ton of prospect capital that's getting close to the big leagues. You know, they had their big World Series run in 2019. Scherzer's gone. Corbin's a shell of what he used to be. Zimmerman retired. Rendon is an angel now. Trey Turner's with the Dodgers, as we know. So he probably isn't super thrilled about the direction of this organization either, on top of the fact that it wasn't enough money per year. So I think when you kind of look at the 440 number in a vacuum just on its own, it's kind of shocking. But when you think about all the context that goes into it, doesn't surprise me at all, and he's worth more money than that.
1: And I'm sure some of the people look at the raw numbers this year, and they say, well, Adam, he's hitting 250. I mean, it hasn't been the greatest year. It's just fascinating, though, for a guy like Soto, who, again, he's hitting under 280 for the first time in his big league career, which started in his age 19 season. The fact that in a quote-unquote down year, the worst year by far of his career, still 151 WRC plus, playing on a lineup that has given him essentially a, a net zero in the spots around him, still able to you know, like hit 19 homers, drive in 42. He's a guy who could still very easily have a you know, 35 homer, 80, 75 to 80 RBI season. And that is, again, on a 90 to near 100 loss team. That's where you look at these numbers, Adam, and you say, okay, if that's the absolute floor for a guy like this, it's, it's certainly where the valuation comes up, and it leads us into thinking there's, there's kind of two ways this plays out. Either you see a team produce some sort of mega package at the deadline that Washington feels compelled to take, or you see him just play out the string and we'll get a very interesting offseason where he is going to be really the first domino to fall. Of those two outcomes, what are you, what are you more bullish on as far as Soto's end destination here?
2: Well, one thing I want to mention about Soto real quick and about the numbers that you mentioned, and that's very important to talk about. Yeah. When you look at fan graphs and you look at fastball percentage for Juan Soto, this year in terms of fastballs that get thrown to him. His previous low was 47.5%. So he's seeing 4% fewer fastballs than he's seen in any other season of his career. And furthermore, four-seam fastballs, he's only seeing 27.5% of those. A lot of junk. So it makes it hard to be a productive hitter when nobody challenges you, you don't get fastballs, and there's nobody around you in that lineup to really fear with the exception of Josh Bell, who we'll talk about again a little bit later on in the show here. Uh, As far as how this whole thing plays out, look, in terms of the teams with the prospect capital to make this deal, the Guardians are one. They'll never acquire a player like Juan Soto. They would never pay him that much money to extend him, and they'd never give up that kind of prospect capital. The Orioles are another one. Of course, they take Jackson Holiday first overall in tonight's MLB draft. They're not going to make that play because they're kind of looking more at the long term. I don't think Soto gets dealt at the deadline. I think maybe in the winter he could go to somebody. Possibly a Dodgers or a Mets or something like that. One of the teams that can actually afford to give him that extension because there's really no equity in in mortgaging your future to have him for two or three years unless you're really close. And to me, the Guardians and the Orioles aren't close just yet. It's weird to even think about Guardians, buyers,
1: actually making a push for somebody like that. But as you point out, it would certainly behoove them to at least go down that that path. Will they actually do it? Uh, You have... Decades of experience viewing, uh, you're going you're gonna to go out on a limb and say, no. And there's no reason to believe any, any otherwise. We'll see how this thing all plays out. Juan Soto, he is in the Home Run Derby tomorrow. That will be a very interesting backdrop there playing in Dodger Stadium, where a lot of people, like, like you say, think maybe after the year could certainly end up there in Dodger Blue. We'll talk about all the Home Run Derby first round matchups later on in the show, but up next, it's one of our favorite segments, the regression report by Tampa Bay Rays as we're just getting started
0: here on the run line. To learn more, you found Visa's premier baseball bet. At Bet 365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field.
1: Baseball predictions made brighter. Join the Born in a Ballpark Challenge presented by Blue Moon to compete free for cash all season. and Enter weekly prediction pools to fight for your share of $62,500 in total cash prizes. Head to DraftKings.com slash Blue Moon now to join the action. Blue Moon made brighter. 21 plus only. Terms and conditions and other eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Please drink responsibly. Welcome back in. It is the run line. First of two hours here from our downtown Las Vegas Circus Sportsbook Studios. Alongside Adam Burke, I'm Ben Wilson. On a scale of one to ten, Adam, how old do you feel seeing the son of Matt Holiday go number one overall tonight's Major League Baseball drafts on the eve of the Major League Baseball All Star break? Jackson Holiday, number one overall, son of Matt Holiday, the
2: Baltimore Orioles. Very old. Also, Drew Jones taken in the first also round. Drew Jones, Andrew Jones's son. So yeah, feeling uh, they they go one two. Old. Drew
1: Jones for, to the Arizona Diamondbacks, and then remember that Kumar Rocker guy. Yes. Very interesting saga last year. Who was pitching in, in independent ball after he was the number ten overall pick by the Mets in 2021? Did not go back to Vanderbilt after that. That was all that that the was basically due to his health. There was a lot of back and forth there between his agent. The team ended up not signing. Doesn't go back to college ball. He is the number three overall pick by the Texas Rangers. So that's kind. of... No, I wouldn't say that's a, a sh- obviously not a shock that he was drafted first round, but. Pretty big risk, given the injury history there uh, of Rocker. And then we go uh, Termar Johnson fourth there to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And fifth, I just have to refresh this. Nationals were number five. I don't know, maybe trying to draft Juan Soto's eventual replacement. Easier said than done with that task. And they draft Elijah Green from the IMG Academy in Florida. So those are your top five. Not that that's going to really make a difference in uh, in our handicapping right now, but maybe in a couple years' time. Those are guys we'll, we'll look back at. Uh, speaking of our handicapping right now, Adam, let's discuss the regression report this week. And you've got your eye on one lineup in particular. It's in the AL East, it's one that is right in the mix of all those wild card teams. They would be in the playoffs right now. And you're looking at the Tampa Bay Rays. Good or bad here on the regression report? Because, we, as we know, we can go either way on this stuff.
2: Yeah, so you look at Tampa Bay, and in fact, another injury for them today. Harold Ramirez goes down. He breaks a finger. So, a uh, bad Jeez. day for fingers in the American League East, I guess, here. But you got Tampa Bay so far this this month, and you know without Wander Franco, I really expected this team to struggle. We talked about that last week when Josh Towers was on the desk with me, and they've actually had a pretty good week offensively here. They're back up to ten games over five hundred. They scored seven runs today off of the Orioles and really knocked around Jordan Lyles, who has some pretty significant home road splits. Something for you to keep in mind in the second half. But going into today's game for this Tampa Bay offense. They were 7th in hard-hit percentage in the month of July. And we talk a lot about contact quality, the importance of it, You know how your expected batting average goes up based on how hard you hit the ball. So 7th in hard-hit percentage, but 30th, dead last, in barrel percentage. So this is a Tampa Bay team here for the month of July really living off of batting average on balls in play. They're getting a little bit mm-hmm. fortunate on ground balls that are finding a lot of holes. To me, that's not really a sustainable offensive profile. Now, they did hit three home runs today. I presume at least one or two of those was a barreled ball. But they're hitting balls hard, but they're hitting balls on the ground. And that's not really a sustainable offensive approach in my estimation. So I think Tampa Bay is a team that I'm probably going to look to fade here a little bit coming out of the All-Star break, where I think that they're just kind of overachieving offensively right now. That's
1: really interesting because we had, the, I think we had the discussion on Tampa Bay and you were certainly more bullish on that lineup when Franco was coming back, Mm -hmm. it's amazing how a guy can get hurt, and you immediately, it kind of flips the pendulum based on how productive he was, and yet the team still has had this this small section of play where they've been outperforming the numbers. It's wild how, with him in the lineup, they were underperforming. He gets hurt, and all of a sudden, as you you just alluded to, not that they're knocking the cover off the ball, but certainly hitting above their weight, it seems like. Just kind of a classic baseball variance thing that we see here through a 162-game sample.
2: Right. So, I mean, they were 6th in, in the month of July in ground ball percentage, and they had a 338 batting average on balls in play, which led the league. Today, they wind up with 7 runs on 10 hits. Uh, they did hit 3 home runs, so their Babbitt probably actually went down a little bit because those aren't balls in play. They don't count towards batting average on balls in play. You know, again, I mean, you you go through these little periods where you know, a lot of ground balls find holes, where hitting becomes contagious with men in scoring position, this and that. And th- that seems like a situation here for Tampa Bay, at least over the last week, week and a half. I don't know, like I said, how sustainable that is long term for them. The nice thing for them is that they have a lot of pitching so they can win a lot of low scoring games and low scoring environments. But still, I don't think that this offense is, is going to continue what we've seen. So. Whether you take that as a sign to maybe fade the Rays or just Mm -hmm. look to play unders in Rays games, that's something that I'll probably look to do here once play resumes coming up on Thursday.
1: They were 13th in strength of schedule in the first half, so 13th hardest. Second half of the year, 6th hardest. And you look at that whole AL East, I mean, it's Yankees 4, Red Sox 5, Rays 6, and at the very top of the list will be the Baltimore Orioles. They have the toughest Strength of schedule remaining. Now, you have the Rays, a game and a half up. You see the Wild Card race standings right now and where they sit at the moment. Leading the Mariners, there are the three wildcard spots to remember this year. So right now, it would be Rays, Mariners, Blue Jays. Of some of the books I'm seeing, Adam, that are at least, are at least still hanging these in-season season, uh, win totals. And I would imagine more will start to pop up here over the next 24, 48 hours. Now that we're into that all-star break, Rays are on a 90-win pace. I'm seeing 86.5
2: is their in-season total right now. Seems like a pretty fair number. Well, I I mean, it's probably a little bit high, right? If they're on a 90-win pace, their number's 86-and-a-half, you know, maybe... And you're kind of banking in that, again, strength of schedule, injuries as well. I think a 90-win pace is is probably a little bit of an overachievement for them. I mean, Mm -hmm. look, they've had a litany of injuries, both on the position player side and on the pitching side, and we talked about it last week, and and I wrote about it in Point Spread Weekly, where you've got a guy in Shane McClanahan who's obviously putting up a Cy Young-caliber season. I mean, he is the favorite for the award, but... He's never really thrown, you know, this kind of workload. He's coming up on last season's workload. He was about 19 innings behind it. Had a start here this week, so you know he's about what 10 or so innings away from his career high. I mean, for me, I look at a guy like that and expect his performance to slack off a little bit. And he's probably not the only one. You know, Drew Rasmussen's a guy that really hasn't been pushed all that far, and he's had a couple of injuries this season as well. I think a 90 win pace is is fairly optimistic for the Rays here. And again, with that strength of schedule that you mentioned, because look, I think what Baltimore is doing is legit. I think the Yankees just need some time off, get that bullpen kind of squared away. And, you know, Boston, they're always going to have a really talented offense. They're always going right. to be a factor. And, and Toronto, I think they just ran out of gas in the first half with the limited number of off days that they had. To me, you know, I think the Rays, they're obviously going to make the playoffs. So I don't think there's any question about that. But sustaining a 90 win pace, I think there's a lot of question about that. I think that's why that number seems at least pretty fair to me. You dropped that down to
1: eighty-six and a half. Uh, we were just talking Boston for a segment. Let's just let's just rattle through some of these AL East teams while we while we have a second and while we have the numbers now available to us. So Boston, fifth hardest strength of schedule remaining. They sit right now a game out of the wild card race. Uh, at least their win pace at the moment here is at eighty-three and a half, and the books have set them at eighty-four. So they're essentially just saying probably going to play out the string at about the same pace. Do you, do you agree with that assessment?
2: Well, one thing I will say is, I mean, Raphael Devers has kind of been in and out of the lineup a little bit here of late. And like I said, I do think that the Red Sox will be a team that gets aggressive at the trade deadline. I don't know that the Rays will necessarily. I do think Boston will, and I think Toronto will as well, especially with the Toronto team that is very much built to win right now. So I don't know if the Rays are going to make a lot of big splashes. I think their big splashes will kind of be hoping that some of their injured players come back. But I think Boston could be a team that is pretty active uh come to the trade deadline and, and like I said, I think Toronto as well. I, I'm just
1: looking up too. There's markets for you can you can bet on the final wild card team, which is a which is a very interesting exercise in, in both leagues. Right now, Rays, Mariners each plus three fifty, Red Sox four to one to be the last wild card team. Blue Jays are six to one, twins seven to one. Just again, the four right now, Rays up game and a half, Seattle up a game, Toronto would be your third wild card team, Boston two back, Guardians two and a half back. Orioles and White Sox each three and a half back. What a fascinating market that is. I'm not sure how you really go about betting that, but it kind of comes back to right where you like. You're thinking of some teams maybe regressing out of the break. You you kind of weigh that. You weigh injuries. You weigh strength of schedule, and could we see some separation from a team you know from a Tampa Bay or a Toronto who come out come out of the gate swinging in the second half, and it all of a sudden becomes a race for that third spot.
2: Yeah, I think it's a possibility. I mean, you know, the the nice thing about Toronto is. they can get by in the regular season with their rotation because they've got Gaussman and Manoa and mm-hmm. and you know Burrios has actually looked a little bit better here of late. They need bullpen help. And the thing that's always in pretty good supply at the trade deadline is bullpen help. You know, offensively, it's been kind of just a Jekyll and Hyde thing where they either get hits with men in scoring position or they don't, but they're still getting a lot of chances, regardless. But they need relief help, and that's generally the not only the easiest thing to acquire, but also the thing in the greatest supply. So I think that's something where Toronto, to me, feels like the team that could separate from that group. It's just a matter of can
1: you can you find a little more consistency? And I think you make a really good point that we kind of – it's very easy for us to just sort of throw away, oh, yeah, I mean, these guys are machines. They're playing every day. That does take a toll, though, when you get mm-hmm. some of the scheduling stuff that we've seen with a team like Toronto. And the bullpen is usually the first thing that that, that, that impacts when you when you think about the one part of a team that is usually going to struggle in depth. 21st in bullpen ERA, bottom 10 in, in strikeouts per nine, bottom five in home runs per nine. I'm seeing 87 as their in-season win total. They're on an 87-win pace. You think maybe they could outperform
2: that? Uh, down I, I think that's – if I was going to bet an over with any of the AL East teams, I think that's the one I'd look to play.
1: it really pace. 10, 87 from the Toronto Blue Jays. Would we'll be your third and final wildcard team right now in the American League. All right, good discussion on the regression report. When we return, we're going to talk on fake, fade, or follow – Trends from the first half of the year—that is coming up next, right here on the Run Line.
0: You found Visa's premier baseball betting show. This is the Run Line.
1: The Visa Summer Special is here for only nineteen dollars. You get everything Visa has to offer from now till the end of the month. Sign up today, and you'll get Visa's daily best bets. They include. One Adam Burke on Major League Baseball, even though we've got a few days where we're not going to have best bets because of the All-Star break. But we'll also have NFL preseason coverage, premium articles on golf, UFC, and NASCAR. If you want the full VEASAN experience, which features the daily best bets email, every single edition of Point Spread Weekly, use of our betting tools and a live video stream whenever you want it. The cost is only $19 to be a subscriber through July 31st. Sign up now at VEASAN.com slash summer. As we welcome you back, it's the run line here from Visa and the Sports Betting Network. Time to take a look at at some trends we've seen in the first half. Are we fading or are we following coming in? We we're talking about this off air too, and there's a lot of people who right now they're going to use this time to look at all right, who you know best teams, worst teams in baseball first half, and are probably going to w- I don't know if you would agree with this, maybe mistakenly think all right, well let's just keep following that and and understanding that well maybe the market was wrong on these teams, so we should continue to take advantage of that. Like an example being the Baltimore Orioles, who the market was probably the most wrong on this year. They're your number one team on the run line this season. They're, depending on the site you look at, they're either the number one or number two team on the money line this year. And it's been largely because they have won so many games as dogs so far. How do you look at teams like that, though, where we get to this point in the year and the conventional wisdom is, oh, all right, well, the markets have been totally undervaluing a team like this. So it kind of behooves us to keep playing on them since... The market hasn't been right, and we kind of do the whole hamster wheel thing with with a team like the Orioles. I know you feel somewhat differently, though, about how we tend to interpret this sort
2: of data. Well, I think you, when you look at a team like Baltimore, right, there's nobody in that rotation that's a household name. You know, there, there's nobody in that rotation that people associate as being that good of a pitcher. So because the starting pitcher has so much of an impact on the line that goes up, you know, you're not going to see – big favorite roles for guys like a Tyler Wells or a Dean Kramer or anybody like that. So the Orioles should, at least in theory, continue to be priced pretty fairly. You know, a team that's probably going to continue to carry value throughout the rest of the season. We have seen a little bit of an adjustment to Tyler Wells because his ERA is so low. He's also a guy where his peripherals are a little bit higher. He's maybe overachieving a little bit. But it's not like the Orioles are ever really going to get to a point where you feel like they're overpriced or or something like that. Whereas on the flip side, a team that's sort of in a similar situation, but you know not really performing at the same kind of level, the Marlins, right? They have the Cy Young favorite in Sandy mm-hmm. Alcantara. They have a guy like Pablo Lopez, who's been a really good pitcher for the last three or four years. They have guys that end up causing them to be priced as pretty big favorites out there in the market. Baltimore doesn't really have that. So Baltimore, to me, is a team that will continue to carry some kind of value, I think that that's what you want to look for. You want to look for, you know, I think, I think a team like the Pirates, for example, that outside of a nine-game losing streak that they had in, in the middle of June, you know, they've been a pretty competent team. They don't have any starting pitchers that Joe Average fan knows anything about. So they're going to continue to be a team that's priced probably in some pretty big underdog roles, even though I think that their true talent level is probably better than the market values them at. Uh, it's a really good point, and it's largely because, and I know you've talked about this before,
1: where, baseball betting is really no longer just a strict pitcher versus pitcher handicap. It's just so much deeper than that, and especially now that we have the stats to do that, and you can go so much deeper, but it is wild. Like A team like the Orioles, who have this crazy run, end up getting, I know they lose again today, but they get to 500 at the break, essentially, and it, it, they're doing it despite a team that is bottom 10 in starting pitcher ERA, starting pitcher whip. They, they They strike out fewer than, there's only one of the team who strikes out fewer guys from a starting rotation, and it's not like the offense has been incredible. I mean, they're basically middle of the pack in a lot of categories, bottom five in average, bottom five in OPS in their starting uh, hitting lineup this year. Bullpen has been elite, top five in a number of categories, ERA, walks per nine. So like with a team like that, I, I think people always will then counter what you say, Adam, by saying, well, if, if that if the pitching isn't there and that's how traditionally we've started our handicaps, well, what is there behind them? And that's kind of where something like what you do, you're doing the daily daily deep dive into a lot of these rosters, that's kind of where that comes into play, right? Where you look at an Orioles team, and it's not just the starting rotation, it's a lot of the other team-wide stats, but yet they still find ways to win games. They've been very good at home, a vast winning percentage there at Camden Yards, and it kind of offsets some of where where the market goes on a daily basis.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's an inherent market bias for starting pitchers with guys that strike out a lot of people, and there's a bias against guys that have high walk rates. And sometimes guys can just be effective with a lower strikeout rate and with a higher walk rate. You think about Dakota Hudson, who's been very effective throughout his career for the Cardinals. His walk rate is ugly, but he's an extreme ground ball guy who doesn't really allow a lot of hard contact, doesn't give up many home runs. The walks don't come back to hurt him, but the way that he's viewed in the market implies that his high walk rate is some you know huge, giant, glaring red flag. And I think it's really important when you talk about a team like the Orioles or, or even a team like the Tigers, who you know, obviously they've been quite bad this year, but those are two teams that don't have good starting pitching, but both have really good bullpens. And that's been the thing, that the differentiating factor for Baltimore is that their bullpen is third in F4. They're up there among the league leaders in ERA and FIP. Again, they're doing it without guys that you know most people know the mm. names of. I mean, Jorge Lopez is their closer, converted starter. They have a lot of converted starters actually in that bullpen right now. But that's the thing. You know, people people restrict themselves. You know, so many people say, well, I'm only going to bet a first five because I don't want a bullpen to blow a game for me. Well, a lot of times the bullpen is an asset for you. The bullpen is an asset in every Orioles game that you bet, which is why coming down the stretch here, I started playing the Orioles in games where it was a toss-up line or they were plus 115, plus 120, something like that, because if the game is close in the middle innings, they have the advantage late in the game because of their bullpen. What also helps is their offense has gotten better. But it's one of those things where, again, so many of these lines are predicated on the starting pitcher, and the reality is nowadays roughly half the game is completed by the bullpen anyway. Right, and it's funny too because we've talked
1: so many times, and any anybody who's ever bet baseball watching or listening to us will attest it's like how many bets do you lose because of a bullpen, and it's one of those things where a lot of times we, just, we can be somewhat single-minded as bettors and we say – yeah, that really sucks. We keep getting screwed by bullpens. But you kind of start looking at the daddy and say, well, maybe if we turn it on our head and and we look at the other way, and it's like, well, actually, bullpens can be your friend because there's obviously two sides to every coin here, and it's certainly playing out one way. So that's just a fascinating team to watch going forward. Again, Baltimore, 46 and 46. We've seen their number now. I mean, it's down to like, I've seen 10 to 1 in some spots for them to make the playoffs. How much can they continue to produce? Again, hardest strength to schedule, second
2: half. I don't know, but... It's at least worth having the conversation now. Well, and you think about the teams with the best records, right? So the Yankees, best record in baseball. They're second in war, in in relief pitcher war. Dodgers, second best team in baseball. Fifth in reliever war. You look at the Astros. They're sixth in reliever war. So it's not a coincidence that the really good teams also generally have really good bullpens because you have to win games when you have a lead. So it's just crazy to me the way that people restrict themselves to handicapping just the starting pitcher or handicapping the first five, something like that, because, as you said, these bullpens can be a really big asset. I mean, when you look at the worst bullpens in baseball, Toronto, they're a good team with a bad bullpen. If they fix that, what happens with their prices You know, on a daily basis? We don't really know that yet. And obviously, when Manoa and Gaussman are on the mound, they're pretty big favorites, but that may give you more equity in betting when some of the back of the rotation guys are out there if they're able to get some impact relievers. Yep. So these are all things that you want to pay attention to here with the trade deadline and with your analysis of the first half going into the second half. I, and I've
1: seen with the Blue Jays, a couple of these Minot starts where he, they, they've priced him about 50 cents higher on the first five mm-hmm. run line than the full game run line. Tells you everything you need to know, and it, it kind of backs up exactly what you're saying. Speaking of run line, Dodgers, as we've talked about this before, But the trend has continued into the first half, and I don't know, do we believe this will continue to be the same way? 53 of their 60 wins this year, Dodgers' second most wins in baseball at the deadline. 53 wins on the run line this year, Adam. We talked about it, I think, back in early May. At the time, all but one of their 21 wins had been via the run line. This is certainly something that has continued. Are you of the belief that we, we continue to see value on Dodgers' run line as they have seen their daily prices get through the moon here, and that's evidenced by the ROI barely, Barely up 100 bucks, basically about a unit if we're assuming ROI is on a $100 bet per game basis, even though they've won two thirds of their games here.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, a team like the Dodgers is so good offensively. And, you know, they've got a pretty solid bullpen as well. As I mentioned, their fifth in reliever F War. And they have a good bullpen because they're deep, right? So, in games where they have a lead, you know, the other team's not throwing their best relievers. So, the Dodgers have the chance to add on. Whereas for the Dodgers, their bullpen is so deep that even their fifth and sixth options in the bullpen are going to be effective relievers. So that's why they're able to have so much success on the run line, even as a team that has such a high record. The other teams that are good on the run line, the Orioles, we talked about them already, the Rangers. I was going to ask about that. That's the one that, because they're, Nine eight games under five hundred right now, and yet they're
1: fifty two and thirty seven run
2: line. Well, they have a three sixty six bullpen ERA and a three ninety eight FIP, so that's in the upper half of the league. They're very good against left handed pitching offensively. That's been something that's helped them out too. You know, they're just a team. Some teams just don't get blown out, right? Because their relievers keep them in the game, or their offense is able to bring them back into a game. And the Rangers' offense, as it's gotten better throughout the course of the year, that's something that has helped them. Also, you know, their ballpark kind of suppresses offense, which kind of decreases the variance level of a game, kind of keeps it closer, stuff like that. But that is, it is an interesting one to see them in there for sure. I mean,
1: their run differential is only a minus one, and they've been dogs the majority of the time. So you start looking at a lot of one-run type losses, and when you're a dog, that means a cover on the run line. Just interesting to see that a team like that that a lot of us don't really give even second thought to, unless it's you know a Martín Perez start. And you've got a team who really struggles against lefties. You can kind of combine that. It's just interesting to look at, and that's kind of what we're trying to do here, looking at some of these things right at the first half mark of this Major League Baseball season. We'll take a look at some of the divisional races when we return here on The Run Line.
0: At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar, whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field. is Uncanny USA.
2: He says, Somebody's in the house, and I screamed.
0: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
2: You found Visa's premier baseball betting show.
0: This is The Run Line.
1: Welcome back in. It is the run line here from Vsin, the Sports Betting Network, Sunday night from downtown Las Vegas, Circa Sportsbook Studio. It's sort of, at least for us, who love betting general sports on a daily basis, Adam, it's, it's kind of that sad time. It's a lull. We're going to have nothing for five days except some home run derby betting, which we'll try to talk ourselves into finding value and then the All-Star Game uh, on Tuesday. But it's at least a time for us to kind of sit back, take a step back, and look at some of these races now for the second half of the year. Where there's value, which teams we feel like might be mispriced, or which teams we, we feel like in general are good play ons here for the second half of the season. I don't know what you're gonna be doing in the next five days, but I'm sure I'm sure you've got some stuff cooked up cooked up your sleeves there. One Edinburgh.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's nice to be able to look at college football and you know, do something that's a little bit different, a little bit of a change of pace. And as I said, writing four conferences up with team previews for our college football betting guide that comes out the last week of July here. So I've been looking at win total markets to see if there's any remaining equity in those. Uh, you know, just kind of getting caught up a little bit on college football because there's so much player turnover. Obviously, the transfer portal, so much coaching turnover oh, yeah. as well. So that'll be largely what'll take up my time here this week. But you know, the All Star break is only three days. I mean, we get, we've got games on Thursday, so won't be uh, won't be that long that that I'll be able to kind of put baseball on the back burner a little bit. It's yeah,
1: it'll be it'll be over before
2: we know. It. Maybe we'll get some golfing. If
1: only I wasn't yeah, I'm hosting primetime action this week, so it'll be. Vegas Heat, you know it's tough. 110 every day. It, it just—it's just hard. It's hot. It, really hot. A team that is not hot at all right now. My Milwaukee Brewers, who who talk about limping into the All Star break, were just dreadful the last three days. Starting with in the do you see this in the Statcast era? Josh Josh Hader's blown save Friday night. Worst blown save in the Statcast era, where he gives up three home runs, six earned, and is—he's already announced he's skipping the All Star game. That was before the big blow up on Friday night. Uh, he's going to spend time with his wife and newborn child who was just born. He's already missed two different stints with the team. And uh, the Brewers, as a result, they lose three or four. Cardinal game wiped out today against the Cincinnati Reds. But talk about how things have tightened here, Adam, in the NL Central. Uh, I know you and I, we, we both were pretty high in Milwaukee coming into the year. I've got a minus 170 ticket on the Brewers to win the NL Central. I keep going back to the fact that the way the the, the division odds are here and even since we made this graphic, they've dipped a little more, now down to minus 230 at DraftKings, Cardinals at plus 170. In what is a two-team race, I still can't get over the fact that this, this to me, should be priced more like a coin flip market with maybe a slight edge to the Brewers. I wonder if there's going to be a turning point here, and, and maybe will the better start to pile on now that we've had the very negative perception of the Brewers immediately kind of on our minds here from a, a recency bias perspective coming into the All-Star break. What, what do you make of where the odds are at in this two-team race?
2: Well, I'll say this: If you look at some of the alternate standings metrics that are out there, the Cardinals do have a better record by Pythagorean win loss by base runs. I haven't looked at third order win percentage yet, but I'm I'm imagining that they're probably better in that department as well. And you know, that's just a sign of the fact that you know when the Cardinals have won, they've kind of won by margin. When the Brewers have won, it's been a lot of close games. They've used a lot of Josh Hader. They've used a lot of Devin Williams as well. Both of these teams are flawed, you know, And, and I think that it certainly hasn't helped Milwaukee. To have Brandon Woodruff go on the IL, to lose Freddie Peralta, you never know what you're going to get from guys like Aaron Ashby. They've had Jason Alexander pitch way more than they expected, I think. Middle relief remains a question for them. You know, Christian Yelich had the back issue pop up last week and missed a few games. There are some things to worry about with the Brewers. There's also a lot to worry about with the Cardinals. You know, Paul Goldschmidt went nuclear for about six weeks. Then Aaron, Nolan Arenado went really good in the month of July. Now he's dealing with an issue that's going to keep him out of the All-Star game. I think it was a back problem. Maybe he just doesn't want to go. Who knows? But, you know, the, the Cardinals are very dependent on Goldschmidt and Arenado on offense. You know, Brendan Donovan's been solid. Of course, he's been up there in terms of the rookie of the year odds. But I don't like their pitching staff. I don't like their starting rotation. The back of the bullpen, you know, if Giovanni Gallegos and Ryan Helsley are not available, they're up against it a little bit. Both of these teams are just kind of depth shy. And the fact that you know the Brewers have not played well and they still hold a lead in this division, mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty good sign for Milwaukee going forward because I think that they're more easily able to figure it out, but you know, we'll also see what these teams do on, on or before August 2nd to improve their chances. And with
1: David Stearns, Brewers GM, they've been very analytics-heavy since he was hired to replace Doug Melvin several years ago. You would expect the Brewers would be very aggressive, but the fact is, worst run differential among division leaders right now, and as Adam talks about, the expected win-loss, if you're just basing it solely on run differential – Again, kind of a flawed stat, just because you, you know that doesn't really factor in the blowouts and close, you know, close margin type games. But the Cardinals would have a four and a half game lead if you just look at expected win loss based on the run differentials so far. Question two: You have to ask with the Milwaukee, and such a big part of why we were bullish on them is because of that just assumption, right? You get to the eighth inning, you're basically saying if you get a lead to the eighth inning, it's pretty much game over. Devin Williams, Josh Hader, we've talked about the whole year and really the last couple of years, best one two punch in baseball. from a a back end of a bullpen that anybody's going to throw out there. And you have this stretch. Josh Hader, worst stretch of his career by a pretty wide margin. 16 earned runs in four and a third innings over his last six appearances. Guy goes from, what, 20-plus scoreless appearances to start the year. Didn't give up a run until June. And crazily enough, Adam, like how about this stat? He comes into the All-Star break with a 4.50 ERA. (laughs) Like that's pretty hard to do. Are you seeing anything like velocity numbers? Anything that would cause you more concern outside of just the variance that's come with hater picking a, picking a couple of really bad spots to give up a
2: couple of big losses? Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, I think these things happen, you know, and, yeah. and obviously he's got things going on off the field too. Those are things that we're usually not privy to. But when a guy goes on the paternity list and goes on the family medical emergency list and all that, we can you know kind of read between the lines and and figure out what's going on there. You know, a lot of times we don't know a guy maybe going through a divorce or you know the custody of his kids hearings about that stuff like that we never really know those things but we know that Josh Hader has been dealing with something you know it's tough to go on the road be at at least Minnesota is close but then to go all the way out to San Francisco be that far away also the guy had seven appearances in twelve days and was pitching for the third time in four days when it did look like the stuff wasn't as explosive didn't have mm-hmm. the same amount of life I think he frankly just needed a break. Just needs to be able to get away a little bit, spend some time at home. You know, it seems like his wife had a very difficult pregnancy, which is yeah, that was yeah, and that those was are, widely those reported. Are things that happened, yeah. you know, it just so be the third stint away. Yeah, and and look, you know, we we kind of look at it. A guy's struggling. Like, well, what the hell's wrong with that guy? It could be any number of things. We just know what it is with Josh Hader, and it seems like maybe some time at home, a time to catch his breath. You know, I mean, I, I don't have any kids. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do. Your kid comes home, you don't get any sleep. You know, then you're expected to go out there and do your job and the dog days of summer with limited days off and all of that. So I think Hader will be fine. I think the Brewers, by and large, will be fine. But I I will say this. One of the biggest issues for the Brewers, and it's been an ongoing problem, is exactly what we just talked about. They don't win games by margin. I mean, Josh Hader has 27 saves. You know, he he has to pitch a lot for The Brewers have won 50 games. Right, because all their games are close. You you need to improve your offense – to create some more margin for error to the point where you can win a game without using Devin Williams or Josh Hader, it's just so sad to me that I mean Christian Yelich. It's yet another year we keep mm-hmm. waiting, and I
1: think we're kind of past the point of will he return to NL MVP form? You know, I as a someone who watches every per game, I'm I'm kind of past that too. Like he kind of is what he is at this point. He's a replacement level player, and and that's about it. And that's kind of what the rest of the lineup has turned into, and it's been very streaky as a result. So that's going to be a fascinating race, Brewers. If you look at the strength of schedule. Brewers and Cardinals, each very favorable strength of schedules down the stretch. Brewers, fifth easiest. Cardinals, second easiest. It is the White Sox who have the easiest strength of schedule remaining. How about the NL East? Again, if we're talking about divisions who the perception is two-team race, I guess he could make a case for Philadelphia at 25-1. They're certainly in the mix for that third and final wildcard spot. But it's Mets minus $2 now. Braves down to plus 145 in a couple of weeks here that's seen the Braves' Continue to put more pressure on the Mets. New York got a big series win, though. Took two or three from Atlanta on the road earlier this week. Two and a half game margin here, Adam, as we go into the all-star break. It feels like a pretty fair price now that we're now that we're seeing the Mets down to to uh, that $2 price.
2: Well, look, the thing about the Braves, and we talked about this here on the show, was that they were reaching a really soft part of the schedule where they were going to yeah. put a lot of balls in play. They have the highest hard hoop percentage in baseball over the last six or seven weeks. They have the highest barrel rate. They just... They make a lot of quality contact when they're able to make contact. So you, you go all the way back to late May, basically. They played the Marlins, the Phillies, Marlins again, and then this stretch that really got them going. The Diamondbacks, the Rockies, the A's, the Pirates, and the Nationals, which was where they put together that big, I believe it was a 14-game winning streak. Since then, you know, they played the Cubs, the Giants, the Dodgers, Phillies, Reds again, Cardinals, Nationals, Mets, Nationals. They've played a really weak schedule now for the better part of basically two months. Fourth easiest, at least overall, first half of the year. Right. So, you know, and look, now they're going to start playing, you know, a Mets team that's closer to full strength with Scherzer and DeGrom starting to work his way back. You know, the Phillies, they still have a lot of issues, but they're going to see Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler in that span. They're going to get more of the Marlins and they're good pitching. I think the Braves are a team, while I think that they're good, I think they do fall off a little bit in the second half as they start playing better teams because they've just been able to tear it up against a lot of bad competition for now, a while now. 14th in strength of
1: schedule now, second half, so that gets significantly tougher. Meanwhile, the Mets, they have the fifth easiest schedule here, as we'll see into the second half of the season. When we return, we still have another hour on the show, the run line here from VSIN. We'll talk some second half win totals. Adjusted win totals are now out in some select markets, and I know Adam's favorite game. Midseason season awards. I know you've just been dying to do this, Adam. We're going to discuss all that next. It is hour number two of The Run Line coming up right after this here
0: on Visa.